Welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly news analysis podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. Obviously, you know some of the things that we're going to be talking about this week. We're going to be discussing possible outcomes of Donald Trump's COVID diagnosis and then also his calling out or calling in rather of the Proud Boys, an organization that I've talked about many times previously on episodes of this show. So first things first, of course, talking about Trump's recent diagnosis that he has contracted COVID-19. He and his wife, the First Lady of the United States, Melania Trump, both uh, tested positive for the coronavirus today. Uh, Today being yesterday for you. Uh, This is uh, October 1st when I'm recording this. This will be released October 2nd. Obviously, you've heard this from other sources, so this isn't like a place to get information about this. I'm here. I'm going to be talking about what this probably means and what this is going to look like, specifically in terms of the right wing that supports Donald Trump and in terms of the rhetoric that he is likely to be employing. All right. So if we think about how Donald Trump has talked about the virus before, he has gone back and forth between downplaying it as a danger and assigning it as a specific danger that an enemy of the United States, China, produced in order to weaken the United States. Obviously, what we can expect is one of these two positions coming from him, and I think that that probably depends heavily on exactly how his course of the coronavirus goes. If he doesn't turn out to be made incredibly ill by it, and neither does Melania, then probably... He will just be like, hey, it's not really that big of a deal. Um, I survived it. We have good healthcare systems now. Things are going to be working fine. And that this will be an impetus to further reopen the country as cases begin to spike this autumn and winter in the Northern Hemisphere. However, alternately, and I think much more disturbingly, there's the chance that Trump could be seriously debilitated uh, by contracting this virus or that somebody else in his family could be. And in that case, the expectation has to be that he will use it as an opportunity to come out against people who he has previously already always signaled as being his enemies. Uh, These people are, of course, clearly China, the the government of China, Chinese Americans, and also the left in Antifa. You know, obviously find a way to get the left and Antifa in there as 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 potential enemies uh, in the course of his having contracted the virus. Since we know that he already has singled out these groups uh, for victimization and for blaming in terms of the spreading of the virus in the United States, if he or somebody in his family was severely hurt or if they died as a result of having gotten this virus, we can expect that kind of vitriol to explode uh, dangerously, I think. And that kind of danger won't just be coming from Trump. There is already serious indication on Twitter, and this is, you know, within an hour, an hour and a half of the announcement uh, by Trump that he contracted the virus. We're already seeing uh, statements by various members of the all right that you know, they're they're blaming the left, they're blaming China, they're saying that the left is gloating about this person being ill, they're blaming people for being immoral, they're saying that 
saying, saying openly like, Hey, you know, Trump is strong. He'll, he'll, he'll recover. He'll be fine. Uh, and that it'll be a big PR boost for him, which I think is actually probably a pretty good read on the situation. We're also seeing a lot of very intelligent commentators, pe- people who follow the right wing very, very closely. Uh, one organization that you should uh, be paying attention to and hopefully donating some money to is uh, something called the Political Research Associates, uh, which investigates the right wing primarily in the United States. Uh, people in the Political Research Associates are noting that, hey, you know who will be the scapegoat if Trump or somebody close to him actually get seriously hurt by the course of this infection. You already know who those people are going to be, who's going to be blamed. It's going to be Chinese people, the Chinese government, ethnically Chinese people, uh, and also those who Trump has always called globalists, which is, as I've talked about previously in this show, his particular gloss for uh, the international left and also for Judaism. The fact that he is going to be scapegoating the people that he always scapegoats for the problems that he experiences and for the problems that he diagnoses the United States with, we can't be surprised by this. We have to respond, we have to be prepared to respond to that message with the real message, which is that we are in the middle of a pandemic, that any one person, especially someone who is actually going out and doing things and meeting new people all the time, like the president, that any one person contracted the virus is not a surprise. The real message, of course, is that of all the people in the United States, his other health concerns notwithstanding, Donald Trump is probably the best positioned to survive and be okay with the virus because he's going to get the best possible medical care on earth. Uh, Whereas we all know that primarily the people who actually fall victim to the virus, who, who are actually seriously injured or, or who die because of it in the United States. They're disproportionately people of color, disproportionately lower income people, disproportionately unhoused. And that's because of centuries of stacking inequalities and oppressions that Donald Trump tries to promote. So all of which is to say This is me. This is somebody who pays attention to the right wing saying that uh, if Trump gets it, it could probably get really bad. Um, You have to expect to be blamed uh, for his contracting the virus, for his falling ill and for any consequences thereof. Additionally, there's the true nightmare scenario in which he dies from contracting the virus. If that happens... We have to expect true political chaos. It will be, I mean, I don't know um, what will happen. Legally, what would happen is that the Republican Party has to pick a new Republican nominee and things go along like normal. But given how the last five years of politics in the United States has gone, we know that we can't really expect that normalcy to continue. Um, We can't expect that to be what happens. Um, Pence would become acting Pence would become the president of the United States. Um, Would they try to delay the election? Would there be people who want them to delay the election? There certainly would be. Um, What kind of traction would they have? What kind of tactics would they use? 
What kind of popularity bump would Trump get? What would his legacy be? It's, I mean, it, it boggles the mind. We're, we're, we're going to need a long time to figure this one out, and we just kind of don't have it. Okay, moving right along to what I had originally assumed was going to be the focus of this episode this week, that Donald Trump's calling out, or like I said, calling in, just sort of noting and even lauding or calling to arms of a particular fascist group that I've talked about a whole lot in this uh, in this podcast, the Proud Boys. Now, you should go back to those previous episodes or check out some more in-depth journalistic pieces if you want to, you know, know about how the Proud Boys were founded, what they, you know, what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm here to talk about how the media has been discussing them. All right. Most of the time when the media talks about the Proud Boys, they refer to them as a sort of, you know, they refer to them as like a gang, they're thugs. They talk about them as a, quote, fight club. Um, they talk about them as hooligans. You know, they talk about them as a menace. What the Proud Boys are is a fascist organization. They are a national organization of nationalists, young men, um, disaffected with society, who have a belief in a transformative vision of the future. They are misogynist. They are racist, although that's complicated in their case. They're connected with the Republican Party in several key aspects. Uh, they are connected to Roger Stone, somebody who is an old party apparatchik who Trump uh, famously pardoned. Uh, their leader is a part of unofficial Republican networks in Florida. That there's a lot of connections that they have. They've attended major Republican Party fundraisers. Um, so they're a grassroots violent association of mostly white young men who believe in using violence to achieve their political goals, which involve the complete reorganization of our society. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. They're a fascist organization. Now, most of the time, the media and in the debate itself, they were described as a, quote, white supremacist organization. I'm not entirely sure why they landed on that particular nomenclature to refer to these kinds of groups. Um, I understand potentially if it was in an attempt to call them out as being something more than nationalist, which, you know, I guess some Democrats might claim to be potentially Biden himself. But the fact is that the Proud Boys are a little bit more complicated than that. You know, they're not a neo-Nazi organization. They're not the KKK. In fact, the leader of the Proud Boys, uh, Enrique Tario, is a person of color. He's a Latino man who lives in Florida. Um, the Proud Boys do not have any restrictions whatsoever in terms of joining the organization uh, by uh, ethnic affiliation or uh, a person's ethnic background. The requirements are that you have to be a person in the United States, that you have to be male, and that you have to be uh, over 18, uh, like any good street gang, which is one of the things that they are, uh, they have tiers of membership based upon what you have done. So, you know, attended rallies, counter protested. If you've actually gotten in physical fights, uh, then you can advance in the organization. Their founder, uh, Gavin McGinnis, uh, famously punched somebody in a while he was, he, the founder, Gavin McGinnis, was wearing a tuxedo on his way to a Republican Party fundraiser in New York. Um, 
they're violent. They believe in violence. They use violence. Now, my equivocating or, or, or calling attention to the complications of describing them as a white supremacist organization isn't to say that their ideology isn't supremacist or racist, because it certainly is. The thing is that they're that way in a more structural way uh, than in the blatant use the R word, like use the racism word, uh, like neo-Nazis or the KKK or some of the other members of the alt-right, um, like Richard Spencer, for example. Those kinds of people will just say, hey, I'm a racist. Um, and they're trying to normalize that. The Proud Boys, unfortunately, are a little bit smarter than that. And they couch themselves as nationalists or sometimes just as, quote, Western chauvinists, uh, that they believe in the power of Western civilization. Uh, and that allows them to hide behind this veneer of civility, acceptability, something that you could talk to your grandparents about when their politics are anti-Semitic, racist, violent, imperialist, misogynist, in very similar ways uh, to groups that most people would find way less palatable or completely impalatable. Uh, they experienced Trump's uh, reference to them in the debate as a call to arms openly. They, 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 they experienced it this way. They talk about this in interviews. Uh, there are innumerable tweets that you could go look at. There are forums where they talk about these things. What this means is that the Proud Boys are about to get a lot bigger. They're about to get a lot more powerful, a lot more vocal, a lot more violent, a lot more open about what they're going to do. And their plans basically are to engage in partisan violence against the left and against people of color in the Black Lives Matter movement in the interests of the right wing, of the extreme right wing in the United States in order to promote their agenda, which is one of oppression, violence, misogyny. That's what they're going to do. Earlier in the debate, when Trump talked about needing to have people, quote, watch the polls, uh, these are the kinds of people who are going to be doing that. We need to be prepared for them to engage in violence against anyone who stands in their way. And not just because they're standing in their way, but because they believe that that violence is good. They, they will be defending that violence. And unfortunately, in Donald Trump... We have somebody who we know will defend them for that violence because he seems to recognize that fascism can be useful to conservatives who can keep it in check. The question is, now that his position is uncertain, will it be able to stay in check or will fascism take up a more hegemonic position on the right? Will it, will it, will it, will it be the vanguard? Will it be the, the motivating force on the right wing increasingly in the next couple of years? Um, and that's unfortunately something that we're going to have to learn together uh, by living through it. All right. That was this week's 15 minutes of fascism. Uh, your see you in hell this week is Roberto Viola, who died this week 
September 30th, 1994, uh, Viola was a president of Argentina's Proceso government that presided over the dirty war, which murdered over 30,000 people. Uh, he was ousted by an internal coup and then later tried and imprisoned for human rights abuses, pardoned by uh, uh, infamous Argentine president Menem, uh, and then died shortly after being released from prison. All right. I will see you next week. Bye.